Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books and Medieval History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and we're here today with Megan Moore. Associate Professor of French at the University of Missouri, to talk about her new monograph, The Erotics of Grief, Emotions and the Construction of Privilege in the Medieval Mediterranean, just out fall 2021 with Cornell University Press. Hello, Megan. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing really well. Thank you so much, Yana, for welcoming me. Oh, this is wonderful. I'm really excited to talk to you. We've been working on it for a while, so it's, it's good that this is finally coming to fruition. Yeah, I'm super stoked to be here and excited to be uh, participating in your podcast. All right. So our first job here is to try to place this particular book in your intellectual trajectory. So I'm looking at your past past research, and I see your first book, Exchanges in Exoticism, Cross-Cultural Marriage and the Making of the Mediterranean in Old French Romance. And I see a lot of work on emotions. And um, you continue your work here on Old French Romance, but you move out as a bit as well. All right. So let's talk about your source material before we get into anything else. This seems to be um, a pretty broad, you use a pretty broad source base. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, you know, this book is sort of an, an expansion of some some previous work on the Mediterranean. And I didn't even expect it to be about the Mediterranean, but I couldn't help myself. All my sources kept coming back um, to the Mediterranean. So I wanted to look a little bit more broadly beyond romance and look at um, other sorts of uh, genres. So in the book, I, I the first chapter focus on, focuses on fable. Um, the second chapter is on romance. The th- third chapter is on epic. And the fourth chapter is on travel narratives. And I wanted to think more broadly about what it would mean um, for the Mediterranean to inflect um, all sorts of sources. And, you know, and I, and I guess I was sort of not, writing a book about the Mediterranean, and then suddenly I was. Um, and so, you know, the, the book actually starts from um, a scene that I noticed in grad school and sort of was the other way I could have gone with um, my whole dissertation project because it's been near and dear to me for a long time. And that is when I saw this scene where 
I read in Eric and Enid, there's a scene where um, the protagonist, the female protagonist, Enid, um, is screaming over and crying and pulling out her hair over the dead body of her lover, Eric, in the forest. And this knight rides up and says, you're so hot. You're so beautiful. I just cannot stay away. I've never seen a woman more beautiful. And I don't know about you, but when I'm crying, it's not a beautiful sight. It's like, it's, you know, there's like the ugly cry when, when you're, and especially in a moment of grief, I mean, it, people let everything go. And, and so why would it be that that would be a moment that would be so highly erotically charged and so sexualized? And how could he think that she's so beautiful in that moment? That was a question that lingered with me for, for like 20 years. And so I felt I compelled to come back to it. And I didn't expect it to be a Mediterranean question. I didn't expect it to sort of call out to these other genres like like fable or epic or travel narrative. But in the end, um, I saw some commonalities in the way these texts were exploring emotion and the way that they depended on the um, erotics of grief. And so the book came together in that sort of around that question and ended up exploring the, the, its connections to these other genres. Mm-hmm. And so you really hone in on grief. Do you, is, I mean, is this like one of the prime emotions you're finding or is it just that moment that really caught you? Well, I mean, definitely that moment caught me as an oddity because, you know, we often think about the medieval and we think about courtly love, you know, we've been taught to these paradigms about knights and ladies, you know, in in the general imagination of sort of um, popular culture. But in fact, it seems to me that if you are a little bit more attentive and you're reading a lot of the scenes that are about love and medieval texts are actually about suffering. They're not about how easy it is to be in love, but they're about how much you suffer when you're in love. And so um, I think that um, where it, so, so in romance, you have that sort of suffering that suffuses the text. But then if you look a little bit more carefully at epic, whereas it seems to be about sort of anger or rage, there's also a fundamental place for grief in epic because it wouldn't matter if everybody were out on the battlefield, if everybody came home at the end of the day. Like, I mean, there wouldn't be any decisions made. There wouldn't be any victory without grief, without death. And so in the end, um, grief becomes this sort of hidden or second layer, but fundamental emotion, probably even maybe more, more, more fundamental than like say love in the sense that um, without, without commemoration, without weeping, without sorrow, um, we don't have a lot of this, the sort of social structures reinforced um, throughout all of these genres of text. So for me, although these other emotions are also super important, um, grief becomes sort of one of the the currents that ties together um, the emotional practices of the elite amongst many different genres of text. And I would argue more importantly in um, throughout, you know, throughout Mediterranean culture. Mm -hmm. So it becomes like, it's a grief then becomes like this way of, of sitting on other emotions, right? It, 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 um, exacerbate isn't the word I want, but it's like, it, uh, it it's amplifies kind of other emotions or notes them. Yeah, I mean, I think that what what grief does is it provides a space um, for commemoration or for, for it provides this this space for valuing human life and determining 
I guess um, one of the, the bigger questions is like, you know, h- how do we remember a life? What does a life mean? What is a life? What, what, how can we attribute value to a life? And grief is one of the primary ways we have um, of, of valuing and showing value for a life. Um, the more people grieve, it's sort of a chiasma, right? Like chiasmus is like the more people grieve, the more you recognize the loss they're feeling. You know, it's public. It's like a legible thing. Grief becomes this way of writing a narrative, a public narrative through bodily signs, through tears, through um, sighs and cries that is legible to the larger community that you that your loss matters or that this person mattered. And so um, it, it becomes this sort of eternal emotion rather than, um, you know, um, a temporary emotion. Mm-hmm. All right. I, and I think, you know, that's, I want to get into another point you make where you say that um, you take emotions to be culturally contextualized performances of feelings. And uh, this this is a place where you, you're talking about the performative the performance of emotion. So how does that work? How are emotions performatives? Well, so in my work, I'm sort of following the theories of emotion that differentiate between maybe differentiate between, you know, the the neurobiological model, which would be um, when you know you have a fight or flight response, say to, um, you know, being attacked by a bear or something like that. That's a cascade of, of hormones and sorts of re- like chemical responses in the body. But then there's the, the idea of a feeling, which would be something internal, which would be something that, you know, you privately feel, but you might not be um, verbalizing or you might not be expressing to anyone in, in a particular way. But then emotions in, in my work and in others' work are, are a way of thinking about an exchange between people. So when I um, you know, you feel it uh, happy, you might be giving a smile, people might read your face. There's an exchange and there's a kind of reading uh, community, a, a community created, and then there's a sort of act of reading and de- deciphering that happens so that every time you are expressing an emotion, it becomes an active community because it interpolates uh, another person and their ability to decode what you're putting out there. Um, and so, um, then from there you could you could think a little bit further to think about emotions as sort of performing community you know so like for example um, a, a good performance of an emotion is when um, it's acceptable in community so if I take my child to the supermarket and they start screaming on the floor that temper tantrum is not acceptable and so you would maybe um, you know you may upbraid the child or something and say like this isn't appropriate here Likewise, laughing at a funeral, not appropriate. So we have these ways in which um, emotions perform the boundaries of community because emotions become sort of like the, the, the code for how to act, um, how, to, you know, how to feel. And so if you are acting and, and feeling and expressing feelings um, in, in community, so emotions in a way that your community can't accept, you are going to be beyond the boundaries of their community. You're going to be rejected. And so those are a grief can become a performance um, of elite community in my book because um, certain lives are grieved more than other lives. You know, certain certain um, performances of grief matter more to these texts than other performances of grief. So um, in that way, grief helps negotiate differences between people in status or place in community, and it helps not only. Um, 
differentiate between people, but reinforce the feeling of community amongst those performing it in the same way. Right. And then because this dialectic, because there's this dialectic of performance and acceptance, that becomes a very good like a way to see into an otherwise perhaps um, more uh, distant or difficult to read culture, like or part of culture. Right. And I mean, I think that whereas we usually focus on maybe the more positive emotions or, um, you know, it's easier to think about love as uniting people. Um, you know, in, in my book, I'm exploring the ways in which um, grief might be kind of posited as a kind of emotional exceptionalism in the sense that because they're, because grief inaugurates a hierarchy between people, we're getting a better, if, if you pay attention to grief, you can get a better viewpoint or, or more information about the ways that power is constructed in the Middle Ages. And so um, we, you know, in this book, I'm reading from the, the vantage point of sort of the manuscripts that, um, that are interested in, in, in reproducing privilege because of the way manuscript culture and patronage culture works in the Middle Ages. But another way would be to look at the holes who, you know, who cannot be grieved, who cannot show up in these narratives, whose lives are not the ones that are um, replicated over and over through song or through sighs and cries. Um, and so I think that that um, provides some insight into the ways that uh, power might have worked in the Middle Ages as well. I mean, um, and, you know, spoiler alert, folks, but like, who is it? Who's worthy of grief? Who gets to be <laughs> grieved? Sorry. Well, unsurprisingly, it's the nobility. Well, I mean, I don't know that that is 100% an accurate claim in the sense that what we have transmitted to us today from medieval texts are manuscripts that were paid for, commissioned, and designed to um, appease or, or please elite, elite, elite culture elites. So the things that they contain are naturally more interesting and, and more flattering to the elites. So, you know, because manuscripts are so expensive and so difficult to reproduce, what we have as material culture from and, and as source material from that time only sort of testifies to the place of um, of the elite, whereas maybe there would be another another narrative available if we had different kinds of sources. So, but but within the text that we do have, um, they by and large imagine that elite lives are more worth mourning and and are more worth um, paying attention to and reproducing and sort of immortalizing than say the twenty thousand men that make up the army of Charlemagne's, you know. Um, slain soldiers that we just sort of hear about in passing. Nowhere near as important as, you know, someone someone who we love, a main character, um, right? Which is about manuscript tradition. I, But also one imagines um, we get a very different, we would get a different picture if we were able to access other records, but, you know, they're just not necessarily there. Yeah, and I mean, the one way we could kind of imagine getting more of a picture is to look at the places that sort of are holes in the in the narratives that we do have, you know, and that's speculative, but it's it's something, you know. Sure. Yeah, and there's work on like folklore and, you know, folk tales and, and such, but those are, you know, they're so old and like there's so there's so many, uh, there's such a long time between the oral retelling and when we've written them down. You know, but there's a lot there that's missing as well. It's just, it's a distant world, right? 
Definitely. There's, there's just only so much we can do. So let's step away from uh, grief for a minute and talk about desire. So, I mean, the title of the book is The Erotics of Grief. Um, so we can see, no surprise, this speaks to the way grief is kind of intertwined with desire and love on some level. So, I mean, let's let's look at this. Like, what does desire signify for us? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think that it, within the, the world, sort of the textural world of these sources, as I said, that is very um, geared towards elite status and sort of elite um, courtly culture, um, desire isn't just about love. Um, and in fact, desire, I, I guess, let me, let me restate that. It, what's interesting is that desire um, is framed within these texts as something that happens within marriage, whereas in the real medieval world, we know that most marriages were arranged and were by convenience. And so it's really interesting to think about love motivating um, relationships or desire motivating relationships at all. And then within the world of sort of these texts, I think what is even more interesting is to think about the ways that grief might become desirable. You know, it's counterintuitive because most of us think that what is desirable is to be alive, right? Is to be, you know, in our relationships, in our daily lives, you know, sort of um, flourishing in, in the here and now. But in in the culture of this of this world that I'm exploring here, in fact, the desire is, is not just about that. It's also a desire for um, cementing power through immortality. And so, the desire I claim in this book is not just about, um, you know, sexual or, or amorous desire between people, but it's about desire for commemoration, desire for narrative. And so um, grief becomes a way of, of sort of writing the story of someone's life. And so grief becomes desirable because if, um, you know, in that in that example I gave you about about the knight riding up and saying to need you're so hot. Um, here, like, why, why would that grief be desirable? Well, it would be desirable because she's mourning another man and her mourning becomes the, the gateway, the pathway for a story about a man's life. And so what is desirable is the way that grief leads to storytelling. And so there's something very erotic about being talked over and being, mm-hmm. being remembered. Sure. And her grief reaffirms the value of the of this of the object of her grief right like this person matters because she's grieving well i mean hmm? no absolutely so you know he he he's um he's valuable because she is making him valuable right and that dialectic again so she gets to grieve, right? This is a question we talk about who you might grieve about, but who is allowed to grieve or whose grief matters? That's a great question. Um, and, and I love that question so much because it, it is something that we ask today in a little bit different way um, in in the dynamics of, you know, whose, whose lives matter. And I think that there is a, a big parallel between today's questions about that and the ways that um, that we think about whose grief matters in the Middle Ages, in the sense that in the Middle Ages, there's a great disparity between some people who have a lot of privilege and money and power and um, the majority of people who don't. And to some extent, the people who, who have the power in the Middle Ages are the ones whose grief matters. And they're and, and at the same time, um, their grief is imagined as exceptional or narratable. 
whereas um, you know commoners grief might be might be helpful but it isn't something that is individually um, paid attention to or explored in these texts so you'll have instances where you'll have stanza after stanza or you know page or after page of um, people the narrator talking about um, an individual noble's grief and then you'll have like a couple of lines that 20,000 other men fell faint, right? Or that um, in, in another text, um, a bunch of, of citizens noticed that their, their, their lady was um, dying and, 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 you know, stormed up to the castle in order to, um, in order to express their grief, but we don't get any more information than that. So it seems like all grief matters, but some grief is exceptional. Some grief is worth, paying attention to and worth commemorating in the form of a narrative. Is that about the person who's grieving, the person who's grieved, or the relationship between the two of them, or all of the above? Or? I think all of the, the above. So um, one of the things, one of the theorists I engage with pretty heavily in the book is Judith Butler, and she writes this um, book called Precarious Life, in which she explores the, um, the relation between grief and power. And she asks this question, you know, um, who am I without you, which is the question about when I'm grieving and I've lost you, what is my identity anymore? Who am I anymore? And that's a really powerful question. But the question that I think medieval texts also remind us to think about is who are you without me? That is, who, what exactly is the value of your life after you've gone if there isn't me to grieve you? Um, and so I think that that, that these texts are about, you know, the griever, the, the grieved, and, and, and their, their relationship between the two, how they're mutually informing. And they remind, and, this, and the medieval texts, I think, help us reformulate or add on to Butler's questions by um, reminding us that there's that sort of relationality between both the, the, the subject and, and the object of grief. All right. Um, you spend a lot of time on um, widows, not a lot of time, but I, I mean, there's a chapter on widows in particular. What's special about the way widows grieve or the grief of widows? Um, I think that widows have a really specifically precarious place in medieval culture. They are mistrusted, reviled, um, castigated in many texts because they are the, you know, m- Many people have written that they are the only women who are m- mainly free to do what they want to do. They are suddenly in charge of their finances. They are no longer expected to marry or, ch- or bear children. And so um, there, ha- there are a lot of, there's a lot of writing in, by medieval people and medieval church fathers, for example, who are worried about what widows are up to. Um, and so the, being a widow is a precarious place. Um, you're no longer pr- protected either, though. I mean, you're, you're both empowered and in a precarious moment. There's no there's no social safety net and there's no protection. And so, um, you know, the, this, the place of the widow is uh, more precarious than the widower, for example. And yet widow's grief is 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 very powerful in the sense that they um they can maintain the the memory of the person they were affiliated with and they can, you know, they can kind of create and shape a legacy. 
And at the same time, um, worries about, for example, in the Fablio that I opened the book with, that um, women will quickly forget the, 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 the deceased and move on. And so there's this sort of fraught, um, double-edged nature to women's grief that is um, dangerous and, and, and desirable at the same time. Um, yeah, these these are women who are kind of out of place, right? They are not, and and really unreliable and capricious. You just don't know what a widow's going to do, do you? Yeah, and I mean, and and I think that that is sort of reinforced by Christine de Pizan, who is this widow or um, or widow, excuse me, um, of four young with four young children when she herself is pretty young, and is also a poet. And so she, um, you know, it's an interesting sort of meta commentary because she's mobilizing grief um, in order to make money and she also writes about grief and how alone she is and so it seems to me that um, you know these these church writings the fictional accounts and then this historical woman all point to the ways in which um, you know being a widow is out of place and so you have to mobilize it strategically in order to be successful at surviving you know the the, the loss and and I think it's really interesting and so I think there's both this really empowered and this also like very dangerous status around mm-hmm. around widows yeah um, which leads me to some questioning about like how women in particular are allowed to grieve as opposed to how men grieve and you work on masculinity as well, and I want to get there in a second. But is there some particularly feminine way to grieve? Is there an appropriate feminine way? It feels like in these texts, what is scripted is that women should um, wail and cry as loud as possible and pull out their hair and scratch mm-hmm. their faces and rend their garments. That's the standard description of proper female grieving. Um, I think that what becomes and and you see that when when women deviate or when they um they they become bad grievers is when the texts sort of get very anxious so um in the fablio that the la dame qui se fait foutre sur la face de son mari that i open the, the the book with the the woman is considered an imperfect griever because she goes to her husband's tomb and is wailing and wailing. And another man comes up and says like, Hey, let's have sex here. And she goes for it. Um, and then that's not okay with the tech in the text ethos. And so you see these, like, as soon as, as soon as a woman stops grieving, it seems the message becomes like, that's an imperfect form of grief, unless it's for this other man who's even better and can sort of take over um, the, the status of the man for whom she's grieving. So, um, we get these messages that women's grief should both last forever and then be packed up neatly as soon as another man um, needs sort of needs her and her um, the status she could bring. All right, so exuberant, but but under control. Right, it's, yeah. you know, very like a, like in, in a similar way to the status of the widow itself. Women's grief is very um, precarious. Hmm. And highly subject to criticism, one imagines. It's funny how female work of feminine emotion would work just like everything else. Yeah, yeah. that's true. <laughs> yeah. All right. But then let's talk about the the other position, um, how the appropriate masculine grief. Well, and so that's what's so exciting is you would think that it would be tempting to set up a, 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 a diet, you know, sort of a, 
a dyad or a binary in which, you know, women's grief would be one way and men's grief would be another way. But really, when I was exploring these texts and in, in, for my book, it turned out and what I found was that men's grief was just as desirable. Um, any kind of excessive grief is sort of um, scorned in, in medieval in the medieval um, mindset in the sense that if you look at Augustine, for example, he says, you know, we need to think with eternal time and we should be always cognizant that, you know, we go back to our creator. And so, you know, what's more important is our eternal soul and life. So grief is misplaced. Um, but in the, in my, in my, in my readings, it, it turns out that men sh- it's particularly erotic men's grief because men are commemorating other men and they, and so in the world of, of um, chanson de geste or epic, of course, you know, men are witnessing and gazing upon the loss and the deaths and the sacrifice of these uh, valiant warriors. And so the more that you can convince a man to grieve about you, the more there's sort of like an erotics of gazing and of, 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 commemoration that um, can be, you know, can be put out into society. And so the example that I think one of the most forceful examples is that where we often read the Roland or, or you could probably even make this argument about the Iliad um, as about rage or about, um, about warfare, we have countless scenes of, of Charlemagne grieving and he is <clears throat> pulling out his beard and 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 doing a lot of the same gestures that the women do, and that is not emasculating or feminizing. It's on the contrary, it's um, valuing the culture of sacrifice and camaraderie and brotherhood that is imagined as the backbone for feudal society. And so, um, you know, Charlemagne's grief is not um, upbraided or considered feminizing, but rather is a sign for the the depth of the loss and the value of, for example, Roland's life. And so it's really important and integral to to feudal culture that men be grieving as well. And especially when you can get an emperor to grieve for you, you suddenly have like um, this incredible status accorded to you. So actually, whereas today, you know, if we saw a leader grieving, we might be um, perplexed or not know how to understand that. In the medieval world, the leader grieving was the highest sign of honor you could have. Yeah. All right. So like a validation of your existence then. Yeah. Right. Okay. And commemorative in the same way that women's grief is. Mm -hmm. And so the two kinds of grief are interweaving and working towards the same system in my view. All right. And then how does that spread out to the construction of a broader Mediterranean ethos? Yeah. So like I said, I was not expecting to write a Mediterranean book again. But really, when you look at models for this kind of grieving, you can't help but go back to the Iliad and you can't help but go back to Greek sources um, and, and as well as Roman and Latin sources. But um, really, we have these models that are anchored in the sacrifice that is, um, you know, inaugurated in these classic texts. And so what we, you know, the culture of sacrifice and warrior ethos and sort of um, commemoration and identity are, are all inaugurated in those fundamental texts and passed down through generations. And many of the medieval French texts and other texts that we have from the Middle Ages 
through processes of translatio delineate in the pro prologue that these are the very sources that they are interpolating and calling out to. So, you know, you'll have a prologue that will say, you know, just as, um, you know, knowledge moved from east to west, you know, uh, from from the Greeks to the Romans to the French, you know, you know, they, 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 you know, so I'm going to begin this tale. And the, um, you know, the authors are, are imp interpolating and calling out to a Mediterranean culture, textual culture, but also I would argue to a Mediterranean emotional culture. And so I, in the book, I um, unexpectedly sort of um, came to an argument where I was exploring emotions as sort of the language of the elite um, so that there would be sort of a shared, I imagine, a, a shared emotional culture among the Mediterranean elite who would have more in common with each other than they would with um, commoners or peasants. They would have more commonalities among desiring a culture of commemoration and eroticizing grief as a, in service of power than they would with, um, you know, so somebody uh, somebody from their own country, but who may be a peasant. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that um, the Mediterranean provides this backdrop for a common emotional language that reinforces um, the, the channels of power between elites who are intermarrying and who are crusading and who are coming into contact with each other more and more throughout the 11th to 13th centuries. Hmm. Yeah, all right. That is, that's fascinating. The creation of the medieval world is something that I'm endlessly fascinated in as well. It's just yeah. how the, this interaction, and of course it makes sense, you know, when, when land divides and water unites, of course, like there's this culture, but it, it's really a cool thing to see. And I think, yeah, go on. Well, and in my first book, I was exploring the culture of cross-culture, the sort of, um, connections formed and, and exchanges possible in cross-cultural marriage. And so this sort of stems from that work, thinking about the ways that um, not only, you know, the structural aspects of cross-cultural marriage, but the emotional community created by all of these interweavings of these families throughout the Mediterranean um, makes it more likely that, you know, that there's a shared kind of culture of emotions and especially around grief and its power to create narratives about noble glory, then there would be, um, you know, any particular local family's relationship to any uh, peasant that would be in the area. Um, either we're talking about the, um, you know, the, these intimate moments that are very public, though, right? They're like this, this intimacy that's actually not at all. So the publication of like a public marriage, for instance, and how you celebrate that, how you celebrate a death or how you mem memorialize or commemorate that. This would be something that would, would join. Yeah. The question is like whether there's any true intimacy possible for, for people who are so highly placed, you know, I mean, in the sense that it's almost all one way of reading it would be to be that it would be almost all a performance of sort of um, identity and inclusion and status. Yeah. And I mean, with that is that like your base, right, that we have these relationships that are these public performances, that then the commemoration of them, like the emotion that you have surrounding them would be a public construction as well. 
is, is and, and much well, more likely to, to kind of cross culture. Yeah. And it kind of, I mean, one of the questions that comes out of that thinking then would be, you know, is there any um, performance of emotion that isn't performance? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. is there any, it, you know, one of the questions medievals keep asking is like, well, are tears real or is it just a performance of, of a feeling? And in that, that is a question that sort of becomes, that is posed by these texts. Mm-hmm. Do you have any feeling? Are tears real? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yes, I think they are definitely. And I mean, I think that it, I, I don't mean to suggest like medieval people didn't have emotions. I think that, no, I mean, I think that, I think that, that, that emotions are certainly real, but they can also be strategic. And so the mm-hmm. texts that explore like that um, tension between when you see these, I mean, pages and pages of lovers bemoaning their, their absent other, you know, or, or, or wishing that so-and-so were in love with them, you know, that seems like a very private moment. It's very, it's very, you know, it's psychologically meaningful and seems to have a lot of depth, but at the same time, it has this public function as well, Mm -hmm. which is to give value to the other. Yeah. Well, publicizing doesn't, is not, you know, having public emotion and, or make, having emotion and making a deal out of it are not mutually exclusive. No, right. No, then or no. Um, all right. Thanks. I've taken up very close, quite a bit of your time already. So I just have one more question, which is uh, what's next? What are you working on now? Well, I'm actually working on an extension of this, of this thinking around, um, you know, whose emotions matter and, and, and how does emotion help create um, communities to think about um, the community of the human. So I'm working mm-hmm. on cyborgs and emotion. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm thinking about the ways that medieval uh, understandings of, of power and the human and emotions could inform readings of, um, of the human and sort of post-humanism in um, cyborg Film. And so I've been working on thinking about the, the erotics of grief in Westworld, which is an HBO series about mm-hmm. cyborgs and in other um, cyborg film. And so I think I will pursue that next. That's very exciting. I thought we were um, probably going to go with werewolves or something, but this is much cooler. Well, I, think medieval, I mean, I don't think it's necessary. It's, it may be a little bit unexpected, but I don't think it's always anachronist to pair the medieval with the modern and even the postmodern and posthuman, in the sense that I think there are still a lot of commonalities between between our cultures, even though mm-hmm. it's very, very distant past. And I think that the, you know, questions about who is allowed to count for human and whose emotions matter and, and are, are still they're pressing ones today and they were in the Middle Ages today too. So it's an exciting, uh, exciting moment to be able to compare cyborgs and medieval subjectivities about emotion. That's fantastic. I am very excited to read that. That sounds very cool. All right. Well, good luck on that. All right, Megan, thank you so much for taking some time with me today. It's been a lovely conversation. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful, Jana. All right. Bye-bye.